a major court case could overhaul Georgia's political maps again. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. On today's episode, we'll explore how a key court ruling has opened the door to another round of political map making that could dramatically boost Democrats in Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. A Georgia senator says it's political war. It's Nazism, essentially. Here's Senator Colton Moore explain why he called for a special session to impeach Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, even though Governor Brian Kemp has said it's not going to happen. I'm Bill Nygut. The Senate is back from summer break on the agenda, avoiding a government shutdown. There's going to have to be a lot of policy changes at any CR that I would ever vote for. That's Congressman Andrew Clyde, and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is digging in her heels when it comes to funding the government. We'll share with you her demands. And I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. It's not the ambassadorship he's been waiting for, but there's a consolation prize for the former dean of the Georgia House, Calvin Smyrie, who will serve as one of the United States' official delegates to the United Nations General Assembly. I was some breaking Labor Day weekend news, guys. I hope you all had an enjoyable break. It was my mom's 70th birthday celebration, so the entire family was in town. Uh, and believe it or not, my mom wanted to go to her first Georgia football game in about 25, maybe 30 years. So I brought 10 people up to section 611 and in the uh, upper, upper, upper decks of Sanford Stadium. Uh, age ranges from four to 70. So we had, we had quite the crew. And I know your mother is such a big fan of you, Greg Bluestein. <laughs> she listens to this podcast religiously. But I hope you guys all had fun breaks. Well, happy birthday. And Greg, I don't know where your mom could have possibly gotten the idea to go to a Georgia football game. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was her present or your present. Um, but my people, let's see, we had age ranges 86 to 10 uh, out at the pool. And we had a great weekend. It was a quiet weekend, but that's my kind of weekend these days. Well, it has not been a quiet week on the Georgia political front. We're going to get right back into it after a short break. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the AJC. A federal trial is underway right now, and it can have vast implications on Georgia's political maps. Because if a judge rules that Republicans drew maps to illegally weaken the voting power of black Georgians, then the lines could be redrawn again, and Democrats could potentially pick up a seat in the U.S. House and maybe several seats in the state legislature. It's part of a wave of litigation after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled earlier this year in favor of plaintiffs challenging an Alabama congressional map. And Patricia, this could end up being a big boost to Democrats. Oh, yeah, it could be a big boost to Democrats. I don't think we know really what direction this is going to go in, but Democrats are very confident that the facts are on their side. Just to kind of sum up where they are and what they're thinking. Um, Georgia has added more than 350,000 Black Georgians since the last census, since 2010. Um, However, when Republicans redrew the congressional maps in 2021, when the results of the census were in, um, Democrats actually went down a congressional seat, largely due to the fact that Republicans put more white conservative Democrats into the 6th congressional district, moved more minority voters over to the 7th congressional district. That pretty much bumped Lucy McBath out of a seat and uh, had her running against a fellow Democrat 
Democrat Carolyn Bordeaux in the seventh. Macbeth ended up winning that race, but Democrats are saying that black representation overall fell, and that is at the heart of this lawsuit. It could affect not just those congressional districts, but also state house and state senate districts. And so the the potential ripple effects of this single lawsuit are humongous. Tia, let's talk about the congressional ripple effect first, because back in 2020, Republicans had an 8-6 majority in Georgia's House delegation. But when they redrew those lines, uh, they basically redrew that district to be impossible for Lucy McBath to hold that seat. She ended up flipping over to the switching over to the neighboring 7th district, paved the way for Rich McCormick's victory. But now Rich McCormick could be in the crosshairs again, especially if this district is substantially redrawn. Yeah, and there were even ripple effects to that. So to grab more Republicans for District 6, that shifted District 11, which shifted District 14, which is why Marjorie Taylor Greene's district now goes all the way down into West Cobb County. So there were a lot of ripple effects into how the maps were drawn. I'm just going to be so interested in where the court draws the line, because at the end of the day, Republicans did, quite frankly, what Democrats did for decades, which is they drew maps that benefited members of their party. And they drew maps to try to protect their majority. And again, Democrats did it for decades. Now Republicans are in control and they're doing it. But the question for the courts is, at what point does it cross a line and start violating the Voting Rights Act? So the trial began this morning in federal judge Steve Jones court, and it's expected to last about two weeks. And you know what I think is, I think it's fascinating, Greg, is the, the, um, the Brian Tyson is the attorney who is representing the state in this lawsuit. And he said, I believe it was in his opening remarks, he said, quote, there is success for black political candidates in Georgia, but plaintiffs are asking for more success. Well, where do we see that success? We see it in the victories of Raphael Warnock, um, an African-American candidate, Joe Biden, who won the black vote uh, in Georgia. So what's interesting about that is those are statewide races. And redistricting has absolutely no impact whatsoever on statewide races. So it's an odd argument, I think, to use, Greg. Yeah. And look, I think Tyson and, and, and the state have an uphill battle. Uh, not just because of the Alabama ruling, um, which was such a surprise when it came down a few months ago, but also because of a separate ruling that just came down just as this trial was getting underway. A three-judge panel in Federal Court of Appeals in Atlanta rejected the latest Alabama congressional map because it failed to follow a court order requiring an additional district where black voters could at least come close to comprising the majority. So if you kind of see the tea leaves here, the, the the case law is already kind of tilting one way. It doesn't mean that Judge Jones is going to side with the plaintiffs or side, you know, against the state, but it certainly gives the the legal burden is a little higher for the state, it seems to you. And I also want to mention that also close to home, there have been some rulings in favor of Democrats in Florida, both with that state's congressional maps. Um, they drew Al Lawson out of his seat and kind of diluted it. So also in Florida, there was one fewer Democrat and it was a black Democrat who lost, but also the local map in Jacksonville, Duval County has been challenged and has been thrown out and um, they've been told to redraw it. So it's been very interesting. I think like, Greg and Bill have both said it was a big surprise to see the Supreme Court side with Alabama because we look at the court and believe that it's tilted so far to the right. But to me, that just shows in Alabama's case where there has been a ruling, how egregious the court felt that that Alabama map was. What's going to be fascinating, of course, is remember what's happening in Alabama, Greg, you uh, pointed this out. The Supreme Court 
ruled five to four in a very surprising decision that the Alabama map was illegal because it underrepresented the power of black voters. What did the Alabama legislature do? They went right back into session and they passed yet another map which underrepresented uh, black voters. The appeals court today uh, said, no, 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 no. Now this is going to go to an independent mediator who will draw the map. And I can't imagine that if the if Steve Judge Jones rules against um, the state on this, I find it hard to imagine Georgia's legislature making the same kind of bold effort to, to uh, uh, defy the court. But who knows, Greg? Yeah, stick its finger in the eye of the, of the judges <laughs> of the court's ruling. I already know, and I've talked to many lawmakers over the last couple of days, they're already quietly preparing for a special legislative session at the end of the year, November, December even, right? Right around the holiday season. Um, they're bracing for it. There's still no telling what could happen, but they're bracing for that possibility. And the question is how vastly the districts could be redrawn. Patricia, we already know there is some opening maneuvering going on. One potential candidate that we're watching very closely is Jerrica Richardson. She's a Cobb County Democratic commissioner who is no stranger at all to the politics of map making because Republican state lawmakers redrew her county commission lines to draw her out of her seat. Now she's in this big unprecedented legal battle to stay in office. But she also told me that she's exploring a six district run no matter what happens with the maps. But certainly if the maps get redrawn more favorably for Democrats, she could be a top contender for that seat. Oh, absolutely. And Cobb County is so full of ambitious Democratic potential lawmakers. I don't think it would be hard to find uh, multiple people who have plans to run in the 6th Congressional District if it's redrawn. I will also add that Lucy McBath still lives in the 6th Congressional mm-hmm. District. We don't have any reason to believe that she would switch seats, but she sure still she still lives there. Um, and I think it is a huge unknown at this point, though. And And I do believe that Rich McCormick has had in his mind, no matter what happens with this district, he needs to be acting like he is in a tight district. He acts like somebody who knows that he could have a potential challenge ahead of him uh, in a real uh, kind of in a real battle, in a battleground area. He did not endorse Donald Trump. He talks quite a bit about himself having graduated from an HBCU for med school. Um, he talks about Top of his class at that. Yeah. Right? Hello. I think he was the class president also. Um, so he he talks unlike other Republicans and much more conservative districts. So he's positioning himself ahead of time in case these maps do get redrawn. He is not going to be like a Marjorie Taylor Greene trying to run in that district. He's not going to be like some others. He's definitely left a path for himself back to the middle. So I'm, I'm always interested in talking about the technology that we now use for redistricting. Now, gerrymandering has been going on for a very, very long uh, time. In fact, I just looked it up. It was Elbridge Jerry when he was vice president of the United States, in when as governor of Massachusetts, rather, who signed a bill that created a partisan district in the Boston area. And that's where the term gerrymandering came from. So it's been going on forever. But It's now the ability of maps to be drawn in an instant by the computers that are used that has a major impact on how legislators are able to very finely craft districts that uh, give them precisely the population mix or lack of mix that they want. So I think you can draw these maps, as you said, in an instant. I'm sure AI could do it even faster than regular (laughs) computers can. But there's no way to really drill down onto people's personal ambitions and motivations. And there are so many relationships in the state capitol that went into the way these maps look. So you could have multiple different options that Republicans in their minds thought would not have violated uh, the law mostly because they didn't want to have to deal with a legal challenge, not for any other reason. But um, a lot of this had to do, I think, with who was close with the speaker, who was close with the people drawing the maps, who did they know might be retiring somewhere down the line. So it's what is legally required, what is going to get you to that number. But then also, it's that weird X factor of people that you can just never account for that has to be 
um, it's always going to be a part of these maps and it will be in whatever is redrawn next time. And I think the Supreme Court becoming more conservative emboldened a lot of the risks that were taken in 2020, because, again, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, even other states, um, you know, New York, quite frankly, was challenged from the other way. But you could tell that there were people in charge of making the maps, the state legislators that are in charge of making the maps, even the congressional maps. They hear from their members of Congress, but the members of Congress don't draw the maps. The the legislators do. But you could see them taking risks and basically saying, hey, we know if nothing else, we're going to get these maps in place for 2020. These maps helped Republicans get the majority in the House. And then they're like, we'll just see if if we keep them or not. But if nothing else, it gives us two years of 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 these maps because the courts, as we saw, said it's too late for us to do anything about it for the 2020 campaign cycle. And that's the risk of what's happening in Alabama is having the courts draw it rather than those own lawmakers with their own personal motivations uh, drawing it. Because we know we know very well what happened in the last redistricting where Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, picked up some uh, some very deep blue districts, not enough to threaten her commanding hold on that district, but enough just to annoy her and to annoy those Democrats in uh, in, the, in that section of Cobb County that, who are now represented by her. And Patricia, you mentioned those personal motivations earlier. One thing we also want to mention, of course, is this will also affect state legislative districts. Right now, Republicans have 102 to 78 majority in the House, 33, 23 majority in the Senate. We don't expect any huge changes that will dramatically affect the uh, the the balance of power, but Democrats could also pick up a few more seats in those swing suburban districts. We could have some real toss-up seats uh, in the Atlanta suburbs, depending on how this thing goes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So as interesting and fascinating as the congressional maps are going to be, the real the real nerd town visit is going to be to those state <laughs> House and Senate maps because there you can just think of exactly who those suburban Republicans are right now, who just by just by dint of the fact that this is in court right now, have got to be thinking about their next moves, thinking, do, could I get a judgeship? Is there anything else I could do after this? There, We know which districts could be in play, which ones are in trouble, and a more kind of linear drawing of these maps would really put them in a state of play. Well, that's why I go back to the difference between the old days before the computers took. I, I remember the days when you would go to the redistricting office, the reapportionment office at the Capitol, and they would have these huge maps laid out. And the um, legislators would come in and they'd have to look at them in, in a physical form and try to figure out the composition of the district that they were trying to carve out as legislators for themselves. And again, they have computers now and bam, in an instant, they can come up with a new map. If it isn't quite right, they can do something about that and another. That's part of, in some ways, it's those legislative districts that make the technology even more interesting today. With those longitudinal latitude yeah. lines on those 600-page <laughs> packets. Yeah. Before we go to break, I'm really interested in going back to someone we talked about earlier, which is Congressman McCormick, who is no moderate. He's, you know, just like Governor Kemp, he's no moderate, uh, even if he might be trying to appeal to more mainstream voters. Uh, he didn't endorse Donald Trump. He, he, of course, he Donald Trump backed his opponent last year, Jake Evans. Uh, McCormick is behind Governor uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida. But he has been trying to kind of stake out some, it seems, I don't know if middle ground is the right word, but he has certainly been trying to appeal uh, to more um, middle of the road voters in a way and reminding people of his unique background and his, and his service and his, his role as an ER physician. And with the districts, you know, that could be realigned, uh, even if it's not favoring one party or another, he is trying to position himself so that he's at least competitive. Yeah, I think Rich McCormick is very conservative, but he is not a flamethrower. He didn't join the House Freedom Caucus and things like that, but he's pretty conservative. He's pretty critical of the Biden administration. He's kind of signed on to some of the House Republicans 
conspiracy theories about Joe Biden and things like that. Um, but I think he doesn't lean on them. He doesn't lead with them. He, again, like you said, talks a lot about being an emergency room physician formerly. He talks about his uh, service in the Marines. And he, I think, envisions himself as a bridge builder, again, but still on the conservative side. So in today's very polarized politics, it's hard to build bridges when, you know, people are kind of entrenched. So I wouldn't call him a moderate by no. any stretch. Yeah. Um, but I think he's leading. He When you talk to him, he talks about wanting to listen to people, wanting to reach all people, wanting people to be heard, wanting to be a bridge builder and not a divider. He talks in those ways, very Reagan-esque, if you will. And I think he's tried really hard, you know, in these first few months in office to reach out to his district and he volunteers at a health clinic and um, he's trying his best to kind of be the type of congressman that wins re-election, but a lot will depend on what that new district looks like. Yeah. And that's the thing, like even if the courts decide that Georgia maps have to be redrawn, it's likely that the General Assembly will get another stab at it, right? And they could do a lot of things different than just making the 6th District back to being a toss-up or Democratic leaning, you know? So I'm not saying they would, but I'm saying that there are so many variables other than making the map look similar to the way it looked before the redistricting happened. Yeah, there's a long way to go on that one, but you're you're right. And there's no there's no moderate Republican who can have an easy way winning a district right now that is drawn all the way out from the exurbs of Atlanta, suburbs of Atlanta, the exurbs all the way out to Dawson County. It's as as far reaching as that district is. I know Patricia and I both went to the Dawsonville pool room, the famous pool room, uh, right when that district was redrawn to to see to talk to voters there and. Uh, it is very hard for a Democrat, uh, let alone a moderate, to do any uh, damage there to, to, to get any votes in that part of the neck of the woods. Just ahead, we're going to talk about the GOP's demands as we face another government shutdown. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the AJC. With all the news and the chaos surrounding the Trump indictment in Fulton County, it's going to be really hard to keep up. So the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with our new Trump indictment newsletter. Every Wednesday, you're going to have our latest coverage and analysis of this historic case in your inbox. So you can sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. It's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. So while we're on that subject, the Senate is back to work in Washington this week after a five-week recess, and the first order of business will be setting a strategy to avoid a looming government shutdown. Two Georgia Republicans in the House, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Congressman Andrew Clyde, claim they're willing to risk a government shutdown if demands for an impeachment vote on Biden and to cut off funds to Fannie Willis and others prosecuting Donald Trump are not met. Here's Andrew Clyde. We cannot have a clean CRS for certain. And that would be just extending Nancy Pelosi's terrible policies. You know, they elected the majority, gave the Republicans the majority. So we would change things in Washington, not go forward with a clean CR. So any CR is going to have to be qualified. That means border security. That means uh, um uh, weaponization of the Department of Justice and taking the wokeness out of the military. There's going to have to be a lot of policy changes in any CR that I would ever vote for. And here's Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene on her demands. I will not vote to fund the government unless we have passed an impeachment inquiry on Joe Biden. I'm not going to continue to fund the Biden regime's weaponized government. So there should be no funding for Jack Smith's special counsel. We have to fire David Weiss, who is protecting Hunter Biden on his special counsel. And we have to rein in the FBI. I will not vote for money to go towards those things. 
Tia, this is the sort of brinksmanship that can't be ignored because ultra conservatives, because the, that, that wing of the Republican Party has vast influence in such a closely divided chamber. And here's another reason why I believe it can't be ignored. The most telling part to me of that Marjorie Taylor Greene clip is not just what she says, but the reaction from the crowd. You know, she's talking about a government shutdown and the audience is enthusiastically cheering, saying, do it. We're behind you. And so, again, it goes back to redistricting a lot. But we have a lot of these hardliners are in very solid red districts. And as we all on this panel know, a lot of what helps shift the thinking of elected officials and keeps them from taking positions that are too extreme is that they're accountable to constituents back home. That's a big check and balance. And when your constituents back home are partisan, that allows you to be really partisan. And that is part of the problem that we're seeing in Washington with such just the Congress being so politicized. And so that allows both Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde come from ruby red districts. And so their constituents are not going to necessarily push back on them taking these extreme positions. Government shutdowns are painful. Now, Mm -hmm. even if you're not a government employee who will lose paychecks, you might be someone who needs government services, who calls up and gets frustrated because waits are longer or your passport can't get processed. Yes, there are essential services, but there's always pain when there's a government shutdown. It also affects our economy. But back to the nuts and bolts, at the end of the day, Kevin McCarthy has a five vote majority. You just heard from two yeah. that said, hey, I'm willing to not fund the government out of uh, 200 and 20, I think he's at 222. So of the 222, if he loses five, he's no longer got the got the votes. And that's a problem for him. And there's no easy way out right now. Patricia, what a tightrope walk for Kevin McCarthy. Another one, <laughs> a series of tightrope walks for this, uh, for this acrobatic House Speaker. And you take all of this into consideration, along with the fact that McCarthy and President Joe Biden thought they had hammered out a deal months ago to make this process easier. They had already decided on increases to defense spending, a cap on discretionary spending, changes to IRS funding. Um, And so that was the general understanding of how this would go. But this last minute... um, sets of maneuvering really puts McCarthy in a huge bind. As Tia said, um, if he loses five votes, this vote is over. And we've got two of the five here in Georgia. And Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't even a member of the Freedom Caucus anymore. Um, How can anybody in the Freedom Caucus be considered to the left of Marjorie Taylor Greene at this point if she's already been kicked out of this caucus. On top of that, the dynamics in Washington are such that Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is having this very unusual health situation, and he is seen as slightly diminished in this kind of three-legged stool of Washington power. And Chuck Schumer is going to do zero to help Republicans get themselves out of this bind. So September... Uh, is really racing ahead very quickly. And what could possibly change between now and the end of the year is very unclear. And in many, in some cases in Washington, the shutdown is the only thing that gets people past the shutdown. They make it happen just so they can say, okay, we did it. Now, how do we move forward? How do they move forward? I I mean, I have literally no idea how, where they go from here. Somebody ought to make sure that Andrew Clyde and Marjorie Taylor Greene have Newt Gingrich's cell phone number. They might want to give him a call to ask him about what happens to the party that is held accountable for shutting down the government. Uh, Gingrich did it for three weeks when he was in a war with uh, President Clinton, presumably over uh, Gingrich demanding seven-year budget that would balance the budget over seven years. But really, most people thought it was a slight because he was asked to fly in the back of Air Force One coming back, I think, from Yitzhak Rabin's funeral in Israel then in 2001. And and of course, in 96, Democrats had a good year because Republicans were blamed for the shutdown. We had another shutdown, the longest one, 2008 
2019, 2020, prior to the election. Um, and once again, in 2020, uh, Democrats seem to uh, benefit, certainly in the presidential election, uh, because again, Republicans were held accountable. So, you know, when you threaten to shut down the government, especially over what many people see as extreme demands, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. It's hard. Yes, it's true. But Patricia, you're right. How do they get out of this jam? But more to the point, how do you, what do you say to your own party if you shut the government down and then pay the price for it in the 2024 elections? It'll be a litmus test, but speaking of extreme demands, State Senator Colt Moore back here in Georgia, he is still pursuing his doomed push to impeach Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. I always say it's politically impossible and quite possibly illegal. And he's ratcheting up his attacks on fellow Republicans. He's been sharing their phone numbers on social media. He's been calling out lawmakers individually on in social posts and on public statements. And here's what he said earlier this week on the Martha Zoller show. It's Nazism, essentially, right? I mean, these individuals were questioning the integrity of an election, and one of my fellow senators is being indicted, Martha. And when I have fellow colleagues, when I have fellow senators who are too reluctant to say anything because they're worried that they may find themselves in judicial peril, then that you know disenfranchises the 200,000 people that they represent. And that's why we're in a constitutional crisis right now. Uh, I don't know if it's a constitutional crisis if the entire senior Republican leadership and most of the rank-and-file Republicans are coming out against this idea, saying not only is it infeasible because you need Democratic support, but it's also, again, could violate the Constitution by singling out a specific uh, district attorney. But Patricia, you know this this sort of rhetoric exacts a price as well. I've talked to several Republican Republican lawmakers, not to just mention including Democrats, but Republican lawmakers who have said that they have been targets of harassing behavior, threats. Um, you know, one of them told me that she had to change her address. I mean, all all sorts of backlash from this sort of rhetoric that is going on as the, as Colton Moore convinced or tries to convince Trump supporters that this this plan of his actually can be pulled off when it can't. Yeah. And it really does, in fact, feel like Colton Moore is ratcheting up the rhetoric and not toning it down after Governor Kemp came out and said that none of this is going to happen. And he called what Colton Moore is doing a grift. And you know, essentially said Colton Moore is a grifter pushing this message while he's fundraising. And I give Martha Zoller just immense credit for that interview, because it's just not the kind of conversation any of us is likely to have with Colton Moore. Um, But because she is a conservative, it puts him in a space where um, he went on at length about um, his plans, what he's doing, why he's doing it. He called the situation political war. And he explained that he's using the money that he's getting in these fundraisers to send tens of thousands of robocalls to these Republican state senators, to his own colleagues, telling them to push for a a special session, which again, they just don't have the votes to make happen, and which uh, Governor Kemp has said, is simply not warranted, not going to happen, doesn't need to happen. And where this is going is it's just intensifying this level of honestly violent rhetoric. There is a um, press conference scheduled for Thursday at the state capitol. Charlize Bird has said she's put out a call to all patriots to come down to the Capitol. It's just all sounding very, very much like 2020 and 2021. Um, And members that I've spoken with are concerned. Um, There's concern about maybe they shouldn't be posting where they are in social media. Should they not be sharing um, details about themselves? Should they not be on social media at all? They really do feel like um, Colton Moore alone, and perhaps with the help of Charlize Bird and President Trump, have literally put targets on them. And it's just a really scary time for, for them and for uh, people covering it right now. You know, Patricia, I want to pick up on that, uh, pick up on that because um, Martha, today in the interview, um, did try to call him out for um, rhetoric that could inspire violence. In fact, including his saying that at one point he would pick up his own gun. Uh, he didn't want it to come to that. And he denied it. He said, no, that's not true. She played the sound for him, or he says that. And then he became even more 
uh, uh, violent in his uh, talk about what could happen. He said, well, I don't want to see uh, violence, but it could happen. There could be trouble. Do we have that soundbite, Greg? We are bringing the rhinos to the surface right now. People are recognizing that they may claim that they're a conservative, but when it comes time to take action, when it comes time to stand in the fray, these senators and representatives are, are sitting on the sidelines. So he actually had incredibly, I think, allusions to violence among people who are going to react poorly if the, his colleagues in the uh, legislature don't somehow go after uh, Fannie Willis. But Tia, he's living in some kind of fantasy land. If you listen to that entire interview, it, it feels as though he simply is living in a fantasy world, uh, appealing just to his base, hoping that they will back him up and there will be people who will, but almost nothing he says can lead to any legitimate legal action that uh, will in any way go after Fonnie Willis the way he wants to. Well, that's an interesting point, I think, and I speak as the person on the panel who, you know, I don't cover the General Assembly. I would not know Colton Moore if he walked past me. I don't know that man. But of course, I've been reading everything that he's been saying. And it seems like he's speaking to a very specific audience. And it seems like he's trying to buddy up with Donald Trump. Um, that's Those two things are very clear. But we also can't discount what he's saying, number one, because just like people try to discount Marjorie Taylor Greene, and now she's got very high profile committee assignments and she's a key ally of the Speaker of the House. So we can say right now, Colton Moore is an outlier, but what we've seen, you know, particularly um, from the Republican Party is that extremism has become more entrenched in the party. So we can't discount him. Right now, he is an outlier among Georgia Republicans. But what he's proving as his social media grows is that he is gaining a following among the far right. But Tia, that's one of the reasons that Governor Kemp's news conference last week, which we talked about extensively in our last podcast, was so important. Greg, the governor came out and basically called Colton Moore a grifter. And and that's the sort of rhetoric, that's the sort of uh, commitment to the law that is going to stop Colton Moore from picking up the kind of uh, momentum that a Marjorie Taylor Greene could because she backed Kevin McCarthy when he was uh, uh, having such a difficult time getting the votes to become speaker. I think that Colton Moore is unlikely to break out and become a new star of the Georgia Republican Party. Maybe we'll see. You know, Colton Moore is also maybe positioning himself to run for Marjorie Taylor Greene's seat. <laughs> if she runs for U.S. Senator or joins Donald Trump's cabinet, if Donald Trump wins or who who knows what. And it's, it's notable too, Bill, that Marjorie Taylor Greene told me in an interview that she does not back Colton Moore's call for a special session. She also says it's a fantasy that cannot happen. And I just want to point out one more thing about the danger of Colton Moore that I think Governor Kemp, again, to his credit, has tried to ward off as someone who was in the Capitol on January 6th. I can tell you I've seen with my own eyes that political violence targeting elected officials happened that day. It was real that day. And if you're worried about the prospect of that type of political violence coming to Georgia or any state house, you should be worried about the rhetoric we're hearing from Colton Moore. And that's such a good point. I, I talked to a number of the governor's allies who said that's one of the reasons they they wanted to, the governor to go out and say what he said, because in 2020, they saw all this rhetoric going on in far right media, but hadn't really permeated the mainstream media. In this case, I think the media has learned a lesson and, and so have um, politicians from both parties not to sort of um, ignore some of this rhetoric that is really taking root. So we'll see. We'll continue to follow how this all plays out. Still to come, though, we're going to talk about how Joe Biden is reframing the narrative around his economic policies. And the former dean of the Georgia House gets called to the UN, but it's really another gig that he truly wanted. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. 
Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the AJC, your hosts, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut. Uh, we're also some of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Okay, what's going on in Georgia right now is a new ad blitz from President Joe Biden, who is trying to reframe the narrative around his economic policies as polls continue to show him struggling to sell voters on the strength of his economic agenda. The latest attempt comes in Georgia this week with a round of ads as part of a $25 million nationwide purchase in battleground states. Let's listen to a snippet. They said millions would lose their jobs and the economy would collapse. But this president refused to let that happen. Instead, he got to work, fixing supply chains, fighting corporate greed, passing laws to lower the cost of medicine, cut utility bills, and make us more energy independent. Today, inflation is down to 3%, unemployment the lowest in decades. There's more to do, but President Biden is getting results that matter. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. Patricia, this is not a primary ad campaign at all. It's geared directly towards November voters, general election audience. But it also underscores the challenges that Biden faces in selling what he calls Bidenomics, what Republicans call it that in a derisive way, amid polls that continue to show that he's struggling to rally skeptical voters behind his agenda. Well, yeah, and you understand why he's doing it, because he has been polling below 40% approval rating in Georgia almost since the day he was elected. And um, a lot of that has to do with not the economy, but how people feel about the economy, how they feel about their own uh, experience and their own economic um, standing. Uh, when we looked at that Republican poll that came out last week, uh, the number that really jumped out was 94% said they felt like that uh, the country was going in the wrong direction. And, and a good part of that has to do with economic numbers as well. So even though inflation might be back down to 3%, I don't know if I don't have to fact check that. I don't know if that's 100% true. Um, but interest rates are up over 3%. It's a very mixed bag depending on who you are, where you are. Uh, do you have a student loan? Did you think that student loan was going to go away? What's happening with that now? Do you want? Do you need a new car, but you can't afford it? Do you want to buy a new house, but interest rates look like that's making it not something that's going to happen in your own reality? Even though the economy is not as bad as people thought it would be, that's very true. It is so hard to prove that negative, but it's the only choice Biden has. He has to start laying on the numbers, the data, and the proof points to say, look, we all thought this would be a catastrophe. It hasn't been. And here's where we're going. I think it's so interesting that he is running this ad during the NFL primetime mm -hmm. season opener Thursday night. So, you know, he's looking for a general audience. He's looking for men. He's looking for people who might be a little bit more conservative and not just the normal democratic echo chamber. He's looking for the same people who consider themselves the middle class, working class, and he's going to try to get his economic message out there. I think Patricia's right, though. I think the White House in the Biden-Harris campaign, more specifically, believe that some of this is about messaging, but I don't know if it's as easily solved by just messaging because I think what people feel is different than maybe what the indicators say. Like if you just look on paper, Joe Biden has had a pretty successful first two years. He's accomplished a lot. A lot of the things that he's done 
are are popular, but it's still not translating to um, his approval rating. And Bill, we've certainly seen that battle in Georgia over the tens of thousands of green energy jobs, alternative fuel jobs, electric car jobs that are springing up all around the state. There's a battle for credit. Governor Kemp and Republicans say that's a direct result of of GOP pro business policies, while you know, the president and his allies can say, hey, but these companies are also citing specifically the incentives they're getting from federal packages. Yeah, that Democrats yeah, yeah. You've got John Ossoff and Governor Kemp ready to duke it out over whether it was uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which poured money into to the state, or whether it was Governor Kemp and his pro-business policies. And, and the fact of the matter is, they're both right to an extent. What, but I, I want to pick up on, on this notion that both Patricia and Tia referred to. Uh, Patricia, 94% in our poll say that we're on the wrong track is a staggering number. And yet, as Tia points out, there have been many successes in the Biden administration that under other circumstances might have penetrated. They're the points he tries to make or his people try to make in this ad, but it's just not resonating. And I've got to think that some of the reason, and I'd love to hear what you all think about this, is that Republicans are so much better when it comes to like carpet bombing in terms of their anti-Biden, anti-progressive liberal messaging. And um, it's very hard to break through that and tell the morning, it's morning in America, as Ronald Reagan once said. That's kind of the tone of that ad. Very hard to find the dawn when there is so much heavy, heavy ammunition uh, being aimed at uh, Democrats and at Biden right now. Yeah, I think it's just more mid-afternoon in America. I mean, <laughs> it's a mixed bag. You know, if you can't afford a house and you want one, and it's because interest rates have gone up, and it's because the Federal Reserve has decided to try to conf- control inflation with interest rates, you're in a real bind. You're stuck in a place that even your rent is going up. Uh, grocery prices have not come down, even though inflation has slowed. Um, it's just not that great out there. I mean, people are, there's very low unemployment. It could be so much worse, but it could be so much worse. It's just not a bumper sticker, you know, that's just <laughs> not going to get the job done. Now, pretty soon, if Donald Trump is the GOP nominee, this whole conversation changes. And Joe Biden's only message is, you're welcome, you know, but until then, He's got to get this low-hanging fruit and at least start to message on what he needs to, which is the economy. I can see the bumper stickers now. It's partly cloudy in America. Yeah. Uh, Tia, let's get to this last story. Former state representative Calvin Smyrie, uh, the dean of the Georgia House. He served for 48 years. He was tapped to an ambassadorship um, it, it ended up being an ambassadorship to Bahamas. At first, it was Dominican Republic, and then uh, it became Bahamas. But either way, the federal lawmakers never took act- the U.S. Senate never took action on that appointment. And so instead, at least now, Calvin Smyre has some clarity. He is no longer going to Nassau to serve as the U.S. ambassador. He is headed instead to New York. Well, it's it could be both. The United Nations delegate is a temporary cool thing. It's not a job. It's not the same as an ambassadorship. So I had to do some research because this was all new to me. The United States does have a mission to the United Nations. So there's the ambassador to the UN. That's what job Nikki Haley used to have. Now it's Linda Greenfield Thompson. And there are four or five other people who are Senate confirmed that are part of that U.S. mission to the United Nations. They're permanent. They're similar to ambassadors. Calvin Smyrie's different. What he is, is the U.N. has its annual General Assembly, which is when all its meetings, it's when all the heads of state come to New York and they give all these speeches. That's the meetings actually started today. The big meetings are in a couple of weeks. So Calvin Smyrie is going to be one of five 
delegates that will represent the United States. You know, when you see all the people in the big auditorium and they're all from different nations and they're, you know, almost like the legislature, if you will. But again, not elected a position, an appointed position. So it is an honor. He's one of just five delegates from the United States that will represent the country again during these really important meetings with all these heads of state of roughly 200 countries. But that just highlights that this ambassadorship is still pending with no action. So it's not even, you know, we can't even say he's not going to be the ambassador. At least he would have some closure. All we can say right now is he was appointed to Dominican Republic. Then he was appointed to the Bahamas. That um, expired at the end of the last congressional session, and he was quickly reappointed in the new congressional session, and it's simply pending. So he has been appointed three times as an ambassador. He is still waiting confirmation. The White House did confirm to me that this UN um, delegate does not supersede or affect his pending um, appointment, but there seems to be no movement in sight. And nor does this UN position require Senate confirmations. So right. It doesn't have to wait on those senators to sign off on that. Well, that is all the time we have for today's episode. Coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now dial into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404 404- 526-2527. Let us hear from you. And reminder, we have a very special episode coming Friday. We'll be on scene in Athens, some of our favorite professors' classes to talk directly, not just to our listeners, but to hundreds of students and others who will be on hand for a live audience. Bill, it is giving flashbacks to the days when we had live uh, shows in all over Georgia, including political rewind. Yeah, we went all over the place, and it's always fun to do a program like this live in front of an audience. But I don't know some of these students; they might be way smarter than some of us. I'm not I sure. Think. I'm looking uh, forward. That's a, that's a yes. <laughs> that's a yes. <laughs> well, we can't wait for that. And thank you for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever big news breaks, pretty soon, every weekday. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny one film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.